Welcome to Try, Try Again with Catherine Villas, a podcast dedicated to relationships, the one with yourself and others. For the next several weeks, I want to talk about practical ways to increase the meaning, fulfillment, and most importantly, the love in your life and your relationships. Toward the end of the podcast, I will give you four foundational exercises to assist in improving your ability to emotionally connect not only to others, but most importantly, to yourself. The most common reason people come to see me is because life is just not working out the way they thought they wanted. Perhaps it's because they're not feeling loved by themselves or others, or they're not feeling like they can communicate or trust. They're not feeling heard by anyone. The visual that often pops into my head as I'm listening to the stories is the lone person standing at the top of the mountain after a long and arduous hike. Their food is gone, their water is gone, their energy is gone, and they are screaming at the top of their lungs hoping someone will hear them. What brought them to the top of that mountain is longing, yearning, the belief that somehow it can be different. If that feels familiar to you, then please know you're absolutely right. It can be different. But here's where the really difficult part comes in. And I want you to think about this before you spend any more time in listening for the next few weeks of these podcasts. It's not about learning some secret, some trick of the trade, some magical way of changing your thinking or learning to communicate. It's about hard work and consistency, as is most everything that is successful and fulfilling in life. If it were easy, it would not be as meaningful. But like most things in life, when you take the time to work on how you improve your life, you will find it becomes easier. This work is about exploring your past, and that can bring up a lot of things, including pain. But what we hope is the pain leads to understanding and change. Pain often leads us to the most meaningful and loving places in our lives. There are all kinds of pain in this world. Some are more productive than others, like the productive pain of getting sober or childbirth, the pain that leads us to joy and back again, so intertwined. I know there is likely pain in your past. That pain if not faced and processed and understood from the point of view of the child who experienced the pain and now as an adult is not productive and is not serving you or your relationships. We all have pain in life. And if at all possible, because we are creatures who like making meaning of things in life, let's try to make meaning of that. One of the first things you need to know before going into childhood attachment and wounding is how to calm yourself, to regulate yourself. If you look at the podcasts that I've done previously, there are many on yoga, breathing, self-regulation. I would encourage you to listen to those first or at least explore what you do to create space and calm your body, brain, and spirit. Make sure you keep those things close at hand as you're doing some of this work. When we think about pain and the things that were done to us or the things we did in the past, We can be emotionally activated by the pain and guilt, sadness, and all of those strong feelings. Those feelings are not to be avoided or ignored. However, if you feel overwhelmed or feel you can't process, or for whatever reason, 
I absolutely encourage you to do this work with a therapist. These feelings of overwhelm or inability to process may be symptomatic of the need to do this work in conjunction with a professional. So part of the reason we have to go to the past is to learn. I could give you a set of plumber's tools right now, but if you don't know how to use those tools, you're not going to be very effective and you might get frustrated very quickly. If you haven't studied water systems and how plumbing works, even with the tools and the knowledge of how to use the tools, you still will not get the same results. These next podcasts are intended to examine how relationships with yourself and others actually work, at least in part, beginning with this foundational work. Please know that none of this is presented by me as original thought. It is wisdom collected by the ancients, the Stoics, all major religions, brilliant professionals and experts, teachers, personal experiences, my own teachers in life, including you, my clients and my family and friends. You may hear things you've never heard before. Perhaps you've heard, but you were not in a position to really listen or to implement what you heard. If you walk away with one new thought or skill or seedling of an idea about something, then my time in this podcast is well worth it. I'll start with a story. Thomas had not spoken to his father in over 15 years and had not spoken to his adult son in five years. He had his reasons, of course. His own father had been neglectful and at times abusive, he felt. Thomas struggled since childhood to try and connect to his father. He never felt he quite measured up. He walked away from conversations and encounters with his father, feeling disappointed, unseen and unheard, and always wishing things could be different. Eventually, he simply quit trying. It wasn't that he didn't still wish for a closer paternal relationship, but he believed it would never change. His father would never change. He also had always struggled in relationship with his son, Jake, but Thomas saw that as completely unrelated to the situation with his father. Part of the reason he had ended the relationship with his son as he had felt frustrated and disappointed when he talked with or saw his son. He was frustrated at his son's choices and felt compelled to give advice that never seemed to be taken. Jake never listened to him. Thomas had divorced his wife, Jake's mom, when Jake was only nine. She was critical, he said, and never accepted him for who he was. She never encouraged him, and he always felt his feelings and his voice didn't matter. The success of Thomas's second marriage validated for him that the problem in the first marriage had been his ex-wife. He had a good relationship with his daughter, and so that validated for him that his son was the problem. As we talked, Thomas, at 65 years old, was able to connect the feelings of not being heard by his father to the criticism of his first wife, to the advice not taken by his son. All of these relationships left him feeling not good enough, not worthy of being listened to, criticized, unseen. We examined the family patterns that led to generations of men in this family making the same choices, having and sharing the same feelings. Thomas, after considerable and very difficult work, was able to step back and recognize the damage of these generational patterns. Generations of men in this family had spent a portion of their life on this planet not speaking to their fathers, and historically, the fathers died not speaking to their sons. Thomas's grandfather died without speaking to his father. Sadly, Thomas's father died not speaking to him, and Thomas was prepared that he would pass in his life at some point not speaking to his own son, Jake. 
Interestingly, Jake, who was 45 at this time, also had an adult son to whom he was not speaking. It was a pattern that one might not see if they're looking at things through a magnifying lens, which is what we often do when we're hurt and looking for reasons to justify our anger and our resentment and our pain. But when we step back and view the family patterns from a distance, sometimes many things become crystallized. For Thomas, he recognized the pattern, was determined to break it with his son, Jake. Those first few conversations between Jake and Thomas were not necessarily easy conversations. They were awkward and unfamiliar. And they both began using communication methods and alternative thinking that was not comfortable because it was new to both of them. But they had heartwarming telephone conversations and several face-to-face visits. They were proud of their achievement and the breaking of a family generational curse. They looked forward to many more years of getting to know one another again. This story illustrates why there is much urgency in doing the work and healing the wounds. 18 months after they renewed their relationship, Thomas suddenly died. Yes, that is sad, but think of how much more devastating that story would be if the pattern had continued and he had died not speaking with his son. If you're thinking about a close relationship right now, please stop and consider a couple of things. One is, if we're in a relationship with someone who struggles with a severe personality disorder or brain health disorder, we may be trying to approach that person in relationship expecting things they're unable to provide, particularly if it's an untreated brain health or personality disorder. Consider if there's anything at play organically or medically that prevents you or the other person from engaging in a healthy, satisfying, loving relationship. If you suspect that might be an issue, at the very least, have yourself assessed. Check in with a doctor and a therapist. Make sure your brain and your body are ready for the work ahead. One of my best loved and most used phrases is, all behavior has meaning. And behavior is how we communicate when we don't have the language. So let's talk about how you learned to be in relationship when you didn't have language. This is something I spend much of my day talking to people about. We look at our relationships, loving ourselves and loving others. And how did we learn to do this? Why do some of us seem to do it effortlessly and others seem to struggle in every relationship they have? If you want to understand your relationships, the things you do well and the things you need to improve upon, you start at the beginning like anything else. My earliest training was in attachment. And it's one of my favorite topics. I've talked to classes and groups, and there's a lot about it on the internet. And you can Google attachment theory. You'll get many different ideas about what attachment theory means and how it's used. I'll give you an extremely brief synopsis of my understanding of attachment theory. In the 1940s, John Bowlby, who is a name well-known in many fields, including psychology, studied orphans who were separated from their parents because of World War II. Based on this and other information, including his own family of origin experience, John Bowlby developed attachment theory. Many people contributed to this, including Mary Ainsworth. In a nutshell, attachment theory is important because it speaks to how we attach as babies to our primary caregivers and how we learned to attach as babies is very present in our current relationships. Let's first talk about secure attachment. We come into the world and our needs are attended to. When we cry for food, we're fed. When we are wet, we cry and our caregiver puts us in a dry diaper. 
When we cry and have a need, our caregivers respond and we learn to regulate through that relationship or relationships. We come to trust that the world is a fairly safe place through the trust and safety of and warmth of our relationship. We learn our needs are important and that we are seen and heard. Our cries are answered and our needs are met for the most part. And I I put that in there for the most part for new mom and dads who very often have a concern that if one diaper change is delayed or a nap is missed or they're watching a ball game rather than making constant eye contact, their baby will end up with insecure attachment. What we're talking about is most of the time meeting most of the child's needs, not perfection because no such thing exists. So about 50% of us have a secure attachment with our primary caregivers. The other roughly 50% have what we call insecure attachments, and they're divided into three categories. One is anxious attachment, often referred to as resistant or ambivalent attachment. It generally means we received care that was sometimes sensitive and sometimes neglectful. The care was routinely inconsistent, and the caregiver was often anxious. When we cried for a diaper change, sometimes we got a dry diaper, and sometimes we sat in the wet diaper without change. Sometimes instead of a diaper change, we got a pacifier in our mouth. Our needs were not always consistently responded to, and our cues were not understood. We were not routinely heard. There was a deficit of attunement with a caregiver. When you think of anxious attachment, you can think that this person is saying, I'm not okay, don't run from me, I need you. This is a person who doesn't fully trust that their needs will be met in relationship. Maybe they will, and maybe they won't and thus it's difficult for them to regulate to and fully trust their primary caregiver. With anxious attachment, we can often seem overly emotional, and it may feel like we cannot be comforted. It's never enough. The next 15% of us may be classified as avoidant attachment, which is when a child has learned their needs will not be met. We learn the world is not a trusting place, and primary caregivers in particular are not trustworthy. We learn our needs and feelings don't matter, and we fear rejection. If the anxiously attached individual thinks, I'm not okay, the avoidant attached is thinking, you're not okay, because we don't trust the world, and in our experience, the world really doesn't care. We can feel emotionally distant and have a hard time opening up to others. We have learned we have to rely on ourselves because the caregiver has been dismissive or unresponsive. And then there's a third category comprising about 10% of us with disorganized attachment. It's the personality that says, stay away, but come close. The push away is our fear and the pull is our need for closeness. We've learned our needs will not only not be met, but you often see these disorganized attachment behaviors in children who have been abused or have severe trauma. So as a therapist, we look for certain behaviors in children regarding attachment, and I won't go into a lot of detail here. Suffice to say that with disorganized attachment, the primary care figure is both the one we're supposed to seek for comfort and have our needs met, but also is the one that is terrifying and causing us pain. We want to run to our primary care figure, and we want to run away at the same time creating a tremendous internal conflict and view of the world as well as great difficulty in regulating. The first exercise is to explore your own attachment to your primary care figure or figures. This can obviously be parents or grandparents. For John Bowlby, it included a nanny. Anyone who was responsible for was supposed to meet your needs. 
And know that children adapt to their primary caregivers. So if one parent is inconsistent, sometimes sensitive, but oftentimes neglectful or anxious, the baby may have an anxious attachment with that parent. But if the other parent is meeting the child's needs consistently, lovingly, warmly, the baby will have a secure attachment with that parent. There are certainly more in-depth ways, including the adult attachment inventory that a skilled therapist who is trained in administering can do for you. And if you're interested in further information or assessment, you know how to reach me at katherinekempvelez.com. In addition to your attachment style with your primary care figure or figures, I would also ask you to explore what I'll refer to as your childhood wounding. Before you dismiss this and say, well, I don't have any wounding, I have yet to meet someone that doesn't carry some pain from childhood. It may be at the hands of parents, loved ones, or teachers, but it can also be illness or a devastating accident to a sibling or a loss of a sibling. It could be a house burning down. It could be bullying that we carry with us through childhood and into adulthood. It could be coming from a different country or a different part of this country and trying to fit in. It could be moving so frequently we didn't feel we put down roots didn't know how to connect. It could be religious in nature or racial or cultural or familial or medical. Just as there are so many ways to experience joy in this beautiful life, there are just as many ways to experience pain. So when I talk about childhood wounds, I don't necessarily even mean to say that anyone is to blame for them. That is not the point of this exercise, but it's important to acknowledge that we've been wounded and how it affected and still affects us. So along with regulating yourself, the other three things I would ask you to do this week are, second, to explore your attachment style. It might be helpful to talk to family members to gain additional insight. Perhaps after hearing the definitions, you already know how you attach, how you feel in relationship. There is much information available if you choose to research. Third, consider and explore your childhood, the feelings and any wounding And then fourth, journal about your attachment and wounding. Try to identify the feelings you had to see if they connect to anything you feel presently in your current relationship or relationships. Now, when I say journaling, I don't mean necessarily a notebook with a pen or pencil, although it is my preferred way because we know there's something about the hand movements and writing that activate healing, working memory, and thinking in the brain. But if you are not comfortable with that, you can keyboard or talk into a device. I always like to reiterate, make sure when you choose a journal that your work is private and no one has access to it until you want to talk about it, if ever. It's important in the process that you know this expression is confidential. It allows you to go to places and consider things you might not allow yourself to do otherwise. If you're a client, please bring this work into our sessions together. Looking at our past, especially our painful past, requires great courage. In so doing, we're climbing a mountain, seeking answers at the top. There is finding in the seeking, maybe not what you sought, but what you need. If you're participating in these exercises and feel they're overwhelming to you, please stop and practice breathing and movement. But I would encourage you not to avoid. If they are so overwhelming, please contact me as your therapist or contact your therapist. Very often, it is extremely beneficial to work with someone through these exercises. As always, if you need any assistance or have any questions, you can contact me at my website and have a week filled with meaning and love.